good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Please turn tonight once more in the scriptures to those songs of degrees and tonight to the Psalm 129 and Psalm 129. Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, may Israel now say. Many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The pliers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. Let them all be confounded and turned back that hate Zion. Let them be as the grass upon the housetops which withereth the fore and groweth up, wherewith the mower filleth not his hand, nor he that bindeth sheath to his, to his bosom. Neither do they which go by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Again, it's helpful to remind ourselves that the context of these songs or psalms being reflected upon was often as the people of God made that pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And it was a reflection on the community of God's people. Families came together, but they came together as the, the people of God in that united sense. And thus, the nation, as it were, gathered, and they would say, Now Israel may now say, Israel as a nation has spent much of its history under oppression, being afflicted by its enemies. Anti-Semitism is, is not a new phenomenon in the, uh, the last century. and has been the case uh, throughout the ages. God came to Abraham and promised him an innumerable seed. And from Abraham came Isaac and then Jacob. And he was given the name Israel. Israel, the nation born under covenant. We read of Israel in verse 1 of this psalm, and perhaps in its reference to the youth, it is referring to its earliest days. Hosea 11 and the verse number 1 refers to Israel in these terms, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So God does refer to Israel in terms of its infancy and youth. And here we read of Israel at a time of its youth, and from its youth it had suffered from afflictions. The Egyptians, the Philistines, the Midianites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you name the nation, and at some point or other they have afflicted the people of God in Israel. Oppression and affliction has been the lot of Israel from its youth. And indeed, now, God's people, now under the new covenant, are still the objects of the hostility of the devil and his angels. In the book of Acts, religion and pagans unite in their attempts to hinder the spread of the gospel. If history is true, the apostles were either martyred for their faith or died under persecution. And still today... Even this very day, Christ's church is oppressed in so many parts of the earth. And truly we can say, as the psalmist says, many a time have they afflicted me from my youth. Many 
a time. Let me very quickly outline the psalm uh, to begin with tonight. The first thing to note is, is what I've already began with by way of introduction, and that is the afflictions of God's people. Now, there's a reference in verse uh, 1, repeated again in verse 2, to this matter of afflictions from the youth. The source of the affliction is given to us in verse number 5. And let them all be confounded and turn back that hate Zion. The afflictions are not coming so much out of a desire for territory, a desire for, for new land, but rather these afflictions come very directly because of a hatred for Zion, the city of God, a hatred, again that term being used, a, a hatred for God's presence, and ultimately hatred for God himself. And so the source of these afflictions ultimately comes back to a heart that is against God. A heart that hates God and therefore brings affliction against the people of God. The suffering of those afflictions are referred to in verse number 3 in a very vivid picture. Again, as the plier would, would rake up and ply up the, the field, so the afflictions of God's people are as their back is being scourged. Scourged by the plow, and I uh, wonder perhaps could it be a reference to the scourging that they may have experienced in Egypt as they were working as slaves under Pharaoh. And they were indeed plowed upon their backs, and they were suffering affliction from their youth. So that's the afflictions of God's people. The second thing to note then is the preservation of God's people in verse number 2. Whilst many a time they have afflicted the people of God, they have not prevailed. God did not forsake his people. God still does not forsake his persecuted people. He kept them in Egypt. He kept them in Babylon. God did not forsake those who were suffering these afflictions. Which leads in the third place to the vindication of God's people. Verse number four, the Lord is righteous. He hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. And the idea there is of the, the wicked using bands uh, to restrain and to tie the people of God. But God in his mercy cuts them asunder. So whilst there's affliction and persecution, God vindicates his people. He delivers them. God is righteous. It says there in verse number four, the Lord is righteous. That means that God does what is right. Right is rewarded, wrong is punished. Right will be done in the presence of God and the wrong will be put down. That's, that's always a comfort for God's people. For at times God's people suffer unjustly at the hand of the ungodly, but God is righteous. And he hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. Might not be true immediately, but it's always true at some time. The fourth thing to note is the supplication of God's people. Verse 5 through 8, that is what we know to be an imprecatory psalm. The second stanza, if you like, the second verse of the psalm, verses 5 through 8, is in the form of imprecation. It is a prayer for God to judge his enemies. Again, that is not a popular concept today. There are those who would seek to uh, undermine the imprecatory psalms, uh, bring some sort of explanation to them, but they are what they are. They're in the Word of God, and they are spirit-inspired prayers. And thus you see the prayers, let them all be confounded and turn back that hate Zion. 
To be confounded is to be ashamed. You turn over quickly to Jeremiah 51 just to see how this word is used. It's, a, it's quite a common word in the Old Testament. It means to be confounded or ashamed. It's used over in Jeremiah 51. And what I want you to see is it's used in the context of judgment. In Jeremiah 51 verse 47, Therefore behold the days come that I will do judgment upon the graven images of Babylon and her whole land shall be confounded. Overthrown by God, ashamed in the presence of God, ashamed of their sins, ashamed of all of their abominable idolatries. And all her slain shall fall in the midst of her. And so all I want you to see really here is that this, this concept of praying for them to be confounded in Psalm 129 is a prayer for God to judge the wicked. Judgment. He continues to pray and turned back. In other words, he's praying that they be thwarted in their plans. You know, perhaps you are on your way along a, a road or a highway and you, uh, you have a plan to get from point A to point B, uh, but along that way, perhaps some tree has fallen down and you, you come across a police officer who, who turns you back. He turns you away from your intended pathway. He turns you back, and that's what the psalmist is praying for. The people who hate Zion, they have an agenda. Now, don't we know that today? There are those who, who hate Zion and they want to see the word of God removed from our, our nation and from our, our schools and everything else. And, and so they have a purpose. And here the psalmist is praying, let them be turned back. May their purposes, may their agenda not succeed, but rather turn them around. And thus, the psalmist continues by using a simile in verse number 6 and 7. Let them be as the grass upon the housetops. Again, we perhaps don't uh, get the concept of this the way they would uh, have in Oriental Eastern lands, uh, the flat roofs, sometimes dirt roofs, uh, and those roofs would have had, uh, again, that covering of dirt, and there would be some grass would have sprung up overnight sometimes, but the heat of the sun would have, would have shriveled up the grass. Uh, the idea is of something that is very, very temporary. And though they may flourish for a time, the psalmist is praying that they would be confounded and that they would be rapidly dealt with by the judgment of God, that they would not be allowed to grow and establish. And so in that continued sense, he prays in verse number 7 that they would have no success, that the, uh, the one who's harvesting, even dry grass would have empty hands. No success. He's praying against these people. Again, it's very obvious he's, he's not praying for them to know the blessing of God. In fact, the very opposite is true. In verse number 8, Neither do they which go by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. What he's praying for here is that those who are hating Zion, that they will not even know the blessing of passers-by. In the sense, it's a, perhaps somewhat hard to, to get that as you read through the psalm, but what is being said here is, Well, you hate Zion? Well, my prayer is that no one will come past you and wish you God's blessing. You don't deserve God's blessing, and may you not know God's blessing. This is pretty strong language. You know, you think of the, uh, the situation of, of Boaz in the book of Ruth, and how Boaz is commended uh, by, uh, by greeting his workers. The Lord bless you. And here, no, no. May you not know the blessing of the Lord to be upon you. And so, we see a very... A very vivid picture of the afflictions and the response to those afflictions of the people of God. 
that I believe is a right overview of the portion of Scripture. But I do think we are also in this portion, we are on the right track if we see Christ here. Is that not very obvious? He is, of course, in all the Scriptures. He preaches in Luke 24 from the Word of God to his hearers from the Psalms, as well as from the Law and the Prophets. And here in Psalm 129, we have a description of an afflicted person. Israel may now say, Israel, the Prince of God. It is very possible in Isaiah 49 in the verse number in the verse number 3, that Christ is indeed called by that name Israel and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Possible that that's a messianic verse. But what is very clear is the reference to the pliers plowing upon his back is again used by Isaiah in Isaiah 50. Turn over to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, in the verse number 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And then verse 7 again. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, look, notice. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Same word that's used of the enemies of God. Christ will not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. It's very clearly a messianic portion. We read of Christ again setting his face to go to Jerusalem. We read of him again suffering the afflictions of those who spit upon him. And we read of him at the hands of Pilate being scourged. I do believe that in Psalm 129 we can see Christ here. He was preserved in his sufferings. Isaiah 50 verse 7, For the Lord God will help me. They did not prevail over our Savior. Indeed, he rose again from the dead, seeing no corruption. He was preserved. As it says there in the Psalm 129, they have not prevailed against me. Though it appeared that they were prevailing, yet in the purpose of God, they were not prevailing. And what looked like Christ's defeat was indeed God's victory. They did not prevail over our blessed Savior, who will in turn be vindicated in the great day of judgment, he hath truly cut asunder the cords of the wicked with regards to Christ Jesus. I mention that to you because naturally we see Christ and his people here due to their union that exists between them. There's that blessed union between Christ and his people. God puts his name upon us. We bear his name. And those who hate God hate Zion those who hate Christ hate Zion, and those who hate Zion and hate Christ, they hate us. Because we belong to God and Christ. And so Christ appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, not why do you persecute the church, but why do you persecute me? And there is that intimate identification of the church with Christ Jesus. So when we see Christ in Psalm 129, we see the people of God in Psalm 129, and vice versa. That is, I believe, very, very acceptable. So in light of that, perhaps you're in your study, you're in your, your quiet place in the morning, and you, you read Psalm 129. What do you, in, in North America today, what will you do with the instructions of Psalm 129? In other words, how do you turn this psalm into prayer? You want to do that, don't you? You're in the place of prayer, you want to meet with God. Well, how do you turn this psalm into personal prayers? 
Well, let me give you three areas. First of all, I believe this psalm should lead us to pray for the persecuted church. The people of God have been afflicted from their youth. And that will not change until Christ returns. Indeed, if you understand the, the ways of God, that will get worse as the coming of Christ approaches. From my youth have they afflicted me. And in light of that, we shouldn't be surprised. Marvel not, my brethren, if the, if the world hates you. Indeed, Christ sent out his disciples to minister in Matthew chapter 10, and he, he warned in the verse number 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. And again, the sense of the all there is not all men in its absolute, but all men without distinction. You'll be hated by the rich and the poor. You'll be hated by the Jew and the Gentile. You'll be hated by all sorts of people, male and female. Whoever they'll be, they'll hate you for my name's sake. And again, that union that exists in Psalm 129 between Christ and his people, that works out in the world today. Persecution is to be expected. It can be avoided. And it's avoided by following Peter and denying the Lord. But if we are truly faithful, then we should expect persecution. Now that is made even more clear over in 1 Peter chapter 4. So please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. So 1 Peter chapter 4. So again, remind you, we are looking at the matter of the people of God being afflicted from their youth, from Psalm 129. And I'm simply showing you that that affliction has not stopped in the church today. But as 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 13 says, But rejoice! Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. It's a remarkable phrase. It does not mean that we suffer the cross as Christ suffered the cross. But you do remember what Christ said to the sons of Zebedee. The cup that I drink you shall drink. The baptism wherewith I shall be baptized you shall be baptized. And thus there's a sense in which if you identify with Christ then you should expect the reproach that Christ suffered. Verse number 14, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. He is evil spoken of, yes, but in your part he is glorified. We have a tremendous responsibility to minister for Christ in this world. And the natural tendency is that we would do all we can to avoid persecution. But we're shown in the Word of God that persecution for righteousness' sake is a blessing. For us, the persecution is very mild. But for others, it's an altogether different story. And what I want to encourage you to do tonight and in your private devotional lives is to seek to pray for the persecuted church. I just want to encourage you in light of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, to pray for such. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So I turn Psalm 129 in my mind. It reminds me to pray for the persecuted church. But also, I believe, gives me reason to pray for God to vindicate his church. This is a pattern prayer. 
It is a supplication in the Spirit of God that I believe we have the right to offer. Turn back to Psalm 40 and listen to the prayer prophetically of Jesus Christ. Psalm 40 is one of the most obviously messianic psalms. It's quoted in the, in the book of Hebrews regarding Christ coming to do the will of God in verse number 8. But listen to the prayer of Christ in verse 14. Let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Again, if you began to pray that in many churches, there would be raised eyebrows and perhaps you'd be pulled aside by somebody and said, well, that's not a very Christian prayer, is it? Now, we do not have the right to pray for God's judgments upon our personal enemies as such. And I believe these imprecatory psalms are uh, prayers of David acting as the king. And as Psalm 40 shows us, Christ is praying these. But we enter into those prayers and we can say with Christ, may your prayers be heard and answered as they indeed will be. We pray with, if you like, with the redeemed in glory and those who are praying in Revelation chapter 6 and the verse number 9, those who have been slain for the word of God, they're praying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge your blood on them that dwell on the earth? God is going to vindicate his name and vindicate his people, and he will do so emphatically when Christ shall be revealed in flaming fire. I do think we have the right to pray. For God to vindicate his church. We have the right to pray against those who are hostile to the church of Christ. I believe we have the right to pray against those who in this land are seeking to bring legislation in that undermines the authority of God's word. We have the right to pray against those people with care, with caution. But it is right to pray for God to defend his name and defend his people. Psalm 129, I believe, makes that very clear. And in the last place, we should pray for the enemies of the church. Now, I understand this sounds totally contradictory. What do you mean? Well, this thought comes, I believe, in light of the judgment that is warned. The language of Psalm 129 is very stark. Now, those who hate Zion, they will indeed be confounded. They will not know God's blessing because the Lord will cut asunder the cords of the wicked. God will deal with his enemies, and we should delight in that as God's people. But is it not also right to pray for the conversion of those individuals who hate the name of God? To turn to Matthew chapter 5, where Christ makes this point very, very emphatically. We are noticing in Psalm 129 what we're noticing, that the people of God are afflicted and suffer persecution. We see that track, track through the Word of God in the Gospels and in the Epistles. And yet here in Matthew chapter 5, our blessed Savior says in verse number 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So on the one hand, whilst we can pray 
Uh, that generic general prayer for God to vindicate his name and uphold his cause and defend his church, we are here told by our Savior to pray for those who are persecuting you. I just ask the question sometimes. I wonder how many people in the New Testament church were praying for Saul of Tarsus. I don't know. They were praying for his overthrow. But I wonder that their prayer reflects something of this balance in the word of God. Lord God, if it be your will, may Saul be confounded. But it may be your will to glorify your name by saving him, converting him rather than confounding him. And so is it not wise and right to pray for those who stand against the will of God, that God would vindicate his name, not only in their judgment and in their being confounded, but that God would glorify his name and defend his church by converting them. What did God do by converting Saul of Tarsus? A multitude of believers were saved from death at the hands of that wicked man. And God saved him. I think in a more general sense, the Psalm 129 reminds us to pray for our loved ones who are not on the Lord's side. Christ says, he that is not with me is against me. And though we may have loved ones who are not putting stripes down the backs of God's people, yet we have loved ones who are not for God, and therefore in the language of the Gospels, they are against Christ. And judgment awaits them as it awaits those who would willingly put a scourge to the back of a dear saint in North Korea. They may smile. They may attend church. They may have a Bible upon their table. But if they do not love Christ, they are not for Christ and therefore they are against Christ. And so as I reflected upon this psalm, it reminded me to pray for all who are the enemies of Christ and his church. So do, please, mull this psalm over in your mind and pray it through. God would help us to have the wisdom of God to apply it in a right fashion in our prayers for our families and for the nation and for our time. Safe in the confident knowledge the Lord is righteous and the judge of all the earth will indeed do what is right. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified.